What exactly do highly successful, purpose-driven CEOs and entrepreneurs actually do? The CEO role is one of the most mysterious positions in business, and a purpose-driven CEO is a different breed entirely. I know because I coach purpose-driven CEOs. My job gives me a unique behind-the-scenes vantage point into their world. For years, I've wished there was a way I could share the stories I hear, the risky calls, the big wins, and the big, big courage of these unique leaders because they have so much to offer anyone who's leading a business or anyone who wants to lead a purpose-driven life. This is the inspiration for the Good Company Podcast. If you want to be more productive, attract the best people, and achieve more positive impact, stay with us. I'm Barbara Shannon, your host, and you are in good company. My guest today is Jim Dickey, Independent Research Fellow for Sales Mastery and formerly the co-founder and managing partner of CSO Insights, a sales best practices research company. Jim is a sales best practices expert with a special focus on how artificial intelligence is impacting the sales discipline. He's here to share with us in two episodes what the most successful companies are doing differently in sales today. Why sales? What is it about the sales function for you that is so compelling? You know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, the product. And so, you know, when I started off with IBM, they said, here's your, your 370 architecture. It's going to be your competitive edge for the next seven years. And it was like, okay, well, today, you know, what, what product life cycle has last seven years, right. you know, or seven months or seven weeks? I mean, in seven minutes, it takes you to buy your new cell phone. You know, something else has come out to, to replace it. And so the key thing that I really loved about sales was it was a constantly changing environment. If you learned accounting practices, you could apply those accounting practices for a long time in your career. You know, every so often things would change. You know, Sarbanes-Oxley will pop up or something like that, but you do your job. In sales, there's constant change. And so it was always about, you know, learning new things and and, and get, trying to be the voice and the advocate for the customer back to the marketplace. So your, your product comes out. And you take it out to the market, but you're getting real world feedback on, hey, here's where it fits and here's where it doesn't. And here's what else I'd like it to do, look like. And I just really love that whole engagement where it was just the excitement, the energy, the unexpectedness of sales that said, you know, this is a key thing. Because if we make sales work, then we got the money to feed the rest of the engine. If sales doesn't work, then we got a, then we got a real problem. That's right. Do you think sales is getting harder that's a question I've been asked a lot. You know, this year I had the opportunity to do the uh, sales keynote kickoffs at Dow Chemical, Cable and Wireless, United Technologies, the American Marketing Association. And a lot of people come up and say, you know, I ask that question to the audience. How many people say today think sales is a, a lot harder than it was before, a little harder, about the same, a little easier, a lot easier? Nobody says easier. Right. <laughs> so, Everybody comes out and says harder, but that raises a question. Is that a perception or is that a reality? So you remember in Deming, you know, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. Yeah. I went back and took a look at our, our performance data from the study we did in 2012 and compared it to today. Because for 24 years, we've been doing an annual study of a couple thousand companies in the B2B space, small businesses designed to large enterprises. So I've got not only current data, I've got longitudinal data. And in looking at that, 
I looked at one of the key metrics is what was their percentage of salespeople making quota in 2012? And back then it was 63%. And I tracked it then for each year after that, and it went down to 58, 58, 57, 55. For full year 2016, it came in at 53%. Uh, for full year 17, crept up a little bit to, to 54. But basically, over that time period, we've gone from 63% of people making their number to 54%. So that's that's clearly a, a yellow flag, if not a red flag. I mean, is the forecast more wrong? Uh, the forecast is about the same, but that's not to say it's good. The win rate of forecast deals this year came in at 47.3%, which was exactly the same as it was last year. But to put that in perspective, if you and I jumped on a plane, flew down to Vegas, went into the Bellagio, walked up to the craps tables and made a pass bet, our odds of winning are 49.3%. <laughs> so when the odds of winning a craps are better than closing a forecast that, by the way, we created, you know, that's not a sales management level discussion. That's a boardroom level discussion. That's right. So if our success in selling is going down, why? I think what it is, is there are a number of factors. I think the key one of these is the buy cycle has changed. I had a friend who used to be senior vice president of a jet manufacturer seven years ago when he was in his job. His personal signature authority was two million bucks if it was in budget a million bucks if it was out of budget. And today for both of those, it's 50 grand. So, you know, we, we've kind of usurped this thing where it's now buying by committee, which means it's harder. I've got to get more people that I'm influencing in. Plus the expectations are higher. And, you know, we, we're constantly changing things. You know, there's changes in the competitive landscape. We introduce new products. We introduce new marketplaces. And all those require the salespeople to get proficient at doing things. And I looked at 18 different operational metrics across customer lifecycle management, like prioritizing which accounts to focus on and conducting a thorough needs analysis and you know gaining access to all stakeholders. And again, going back and comparing 2012 to today, 17 of those 18 operational metrics are down. Some of them are down by as many as 20 points. So things like building a key account plan, there were 58% of companies were proficient at doing that Back in 2012, that number's down to 39%. Why? I, I think it's just there's more of a challenge right now. And we, you know, we're still supporting our sales organizations the way we used to support them. If you take a look at the sales training programs that go through, haven't changed all that much. CRM hasn't changed all that much. You know, the types of coaching that we give them hasn't changed all that much. But wait, but, if we go you know, back to your, uh, sorry, but uh, if, if, for example, if we just go back to what you're talking about, building a key account plan. And uh -huh. the proficiency at doing that has gone down. And granted, you know, we should have upgraded our training and approach to key account plans, but we haven't so much. But uh, what's changed in the environment then that would cause what worked then to no longer work now in terms of building plans for our key accounts? I think really it's just the thing of right now, there are more alternatives. So we're building strategic account plans for our things. The I was, I was sharing kind of what was going on with sales with a friend of mine who works in the cloud services area. And when we were doing that thing and we were talking about how sales was changing, he said, you know, there's one thing that you're not factoring into the equation. And I said, what's that? And he said, Alibaba. And I said, Steve, I'm talking about B2B sales. He says, so am I, you know, because I'm thinking Alibaba is Amazon for China. That's where you go to buy your sunglasses, your tennis shoes, you know, your cell phone. 
And he took me over to his his desktop and he goes on, he shows me Alibaba's trade, their tagline. It says, global trade starts here. He says, Jim, they mean all trade. And he showed me how you can actually go on to Alibaba and get information to buy a 1 million won or $290,000 piece of mining equipment or a group of 10, $40,000 a piece solar power communication towers. And he says, look, they're trying to differentiate or disfranchise salespeople from the customer. They said, why, why bother to talk to a salesperson? Mm-hmm. Come here. We're going to have AI tools that will help you identify what your requirements are. Based on those, we'll tell you who the three vendors who should be on your short list. We'll give you a robust feature comparison. We'll tell you how much people are actually paying for this stuff and what terms and conditions they'll negotiate in the contracts and which ones they won't. Well, to give you feedback from existing users, and by the way, when you're ready to place the order, we'll do it for you, and we'll do it at a fraction of the cost of you know buying through a traditional sales organization. So, from the so, buyer's you know, perspective, uh, the salesperson is not always necessary. Yeah, the, you, the question that you're asking is what what value add do you bring? I mean, I think the thing one of the things that's harder for salespeople is. There's so much product information out. Marketing's doing their job. They're putting a whole lot of marketing information out there about your products. But we did our first ever buyer study this year, and we asked 500 B2B buyers, you know, working for you know quarter billion dollar companies or more. You know, people had large signature authorities. Where are the top three places you go to to get information about solutions? And number one on the list was subject matter experts or independent third party reviews. Number two was, you know, my own personal experience. Number nine on the list is I want to talk to a salesperson. And you think that's changed over the last 10 years? Yeah, because it used to be that you had to come to me to get information about the product, to get information about pricing. You go onto websites today and you see that marketing's putting tons of that out there. You know, you don't need to come to me as a salesperson to get case studies. They're on the website. Mm -hmm. You don't need to come to me to find out what the new product announcement was about. It's on the website. And so we're putting tons of this information out there. Plus, there are all these things like within LinkedIn, there's all these groups. And here are people like-minded who are part of let's like things like the Sales Enablement Society. They're sharing ideas back and forth on here's how we're solving the problem. So I right. think that we've got to go back and figure out what can we do to empower salespeople that they're a meaningful part of the process again. What knowledge do they have that the customer is going to need beyond the product feeds and speeds? Well, or do we ask the question, to what extent do we need salespeople? Because maybe the sales organization, the sales slash marketing organization needs to look very different. And I think we're going to see it, it change significantly. You know, there's, yeah. there's a difference between transactions and interactions. So if I'm just buying a commodity product, what's that? That's rapid, repetitive routine. Interactions, though, they're complex, they're protracted, you know, they're, they're, they have value. And I want salespeople who can have interactions with customers where we're talking about, you know, what's the future look like? You know, what could we be doing better together? How can we partner? How can we co-create? And that may very well change the way we hire people. Uh, I was talking to Kate Katowski when she was still over at GE. She's now SVP of sales over at Panasonic Aviation. And when she was looking at you know GE and what do we do around the hiring, she says, I want people that have not just sales competencies, but business competencies. I said, what does that mean to you? She says, well, we have a thing where there is a, a program that people can go through to audit businesses. So not don't think of it as being a financial auditor. This is a business auditor where you go and learn everything about GE Power or GE Water or GE Aircraft. It says, when you come out of that, you think in terms of customer outcomes. 
you understand how to read a balance sheet and a P&L statement as well as any CFO. You understand shareholder value, not just your shareholder value, but your customer's value and their customer's customer's value. And she says, I want people to come in with that kind of knowledge because they can have discussions with customers that we're not having today. And that's really what's going to differentiate us in the marketplace. So let's just take a look at the CEO of today's, say, a mid-market global company. Mm -hmm. And they're looking to enable the sales function in their organization. We're not really talking just about the sales function anymore, are we? If you want to enable Mm -hmm. sales, we're talking about actually operationalizing an integrated business where the top leaders in the business are cross-trained, are business thinkers. Are you seeing that happening anywhere? Are there examples you have of CEOs that are actually leading their sales function in that way? There are, there are bits and pieces, and, and, they, and they last for the length of time that that CEO is in, in place. And then when that person moves on and somebody else comes in, we just, you kind of see those initiatives fall by the wayside. But they're, they're phenomenally successful. We did a case study a couple of years ago on Fairchild Semiconductor. And so they brought in a guy named Chuck Thompson to be the CEO at that time. He had brought on board a gentleman named Alan Lamb to run sales, marketing, and customer support. So again, you know, th- right there, it's put, let's put three functional areas under one person. But it was really this thing of, you know, here's the vision I have as the CEO, you know, because back then Fairchild was known as, you know, we're, we're cheap and we can deliver tomorrow. Chuck's vision was, you know, how do, how do we get beyond that thing? Because cheap can be beat by cheaper. And there are times when the semiconductor industry where we can't deliver tomorrow. So where's our real differentiation? So that was the type of thing where he set the vision but then he looked at Alan and said, go implement it. Mm-hmm. Figure out a way to change this thing. I, w- I want you know, a different view of, of how you view sales. And Alan came back with his understanding of the sales organizations, You know, went and sold it to Chuck first because he said, if I implement this, I'm going to need some help because we're going to need changes in finance. We're going to need changes in manufacturing and distribution and customer support. And if we get into things where you know I'm up against one of my executive brethren, and we can't come to an agreement, you're going to have to break the tie. So I, I need to know that you're there for me first. Mm-hmm. And he, then he went to his organization. And he said, here's my vision. And they came back with 36 barriers to success that were deemed unsolvable. And so it goes, okay, well, I already sold this a check. So I'm glad you told me that it's unsolvable. But let's work on this a little bit because I want to I want to understand why they're unsolvable. And so just at the senior exec level, they worked on it for a couple months, came back, still had 36 barriers. But 33 were deemed solvable and three were deemed hard. So I think it's kind of going through that. And I think the CEO's role, you know, we don't think twice if we're a CEO going to the head of product development and going debug the product. I want it bulletproof. Right. Where are we going to the CSO or the CRO and going debug the process? I want you to spend more time calling on people who are likely to buy from us who are less versus less likely to buy. I want us to not end up with a 20% no decision rate, which is where it's running today for forecast deals. You know, I want to have a strong enough business case for these customers that they don't try to nickel and dime us because they see the ROI and you know we can maintain margins. When we talked about a 47.3% win rate, what, what CEO would allow a VP of manufacturing to have a 53% scrap rate? Right. Okay. Well, maybe I, I'm sure you can't get it to 100% of forecast deals and sales because then you're, you're sandbagging, but it ought to be higher. And I think that's the type of thing where the CEO needs to set a vision, but also needs to start holding the sales ex- department 
to a higher level of uh, professionalism and effectiveness. Yeah, I mean, I just countless companies, almost every company I've been inside of, uh, you know, global microscopy company, semiconductor firms. I don't want to, you know, name names, but because this is not a positive thing, right? But the inability to integrate across the functions, which means to have the senior leaders of all th- all of the functions of the business, manufacturing, R&D, operations, sales, and marketing, all working together towards the business objectives seems to be the holy grail of business. And it's really hard to understand that the gentleman or the woman at the top of the company in the CEO role seems to so often have so much trouble recognizing that they're the tiebreaker. You got two jobs, I think, as a CEO. One is get the right people on the bus. Mm-hmm. And the second one is remove the obstacles. Set the, the, okay, three jobs. Put the right people on the bus, set the vision, and remove the obstacles to achieving the vision. So what you said, you know, we've got 36 seemingly insurmountable obstacles to achieving the sales marketing organization that we need. Great. They work together. They got it down to 33. But you got to have a CEO that knows that once the team has done gone that far, somebody's going to come in and be the decider, figure out the budget, assign the resources, and set the direction. And that does not happen often enough, does it? No. And I think, you know, one of the things that we think is a an eye-opening exercise for companies that we've been advocating it for years is to go and, and actually map customer lifecycle management. You know, what are all the steps that you go through to find more, win more, keep and grow more business? And when you do that, you list down all the steps in those processes. And then you list down all the, all the tactics that have to be um, and activities that have to be accomplished. And then you start going and saying, well, who's involved in this? And you start to see, well, geez, when we get to contracts, well, clearly finance is there. When we're putting together proposals, product development and you know, product management. When we're getting down here, you know, lead generation, we're not touching customer service at all, yet they're talking to customers all the time. Why aren't they out trying to find cross-sell and upsell opportunities? And when you start to actually see all the things that need to get done, that's where you realize that, hey, you know, it takes a village. (laughs) Right. And you start seeing it on a single sheet of paper that here are all the ways that these groups work together. Because I think right now there are too many sales organizations that are focusing on sales optimization. So how do I increase the efficiency and effectiveness of my my team Mm -hmm. when we should be looking at enterprise effectiveness? of how do we work together, better silos, and ultimately extra prize effectiveness because our That's ultimate right. success is dependent on what our Extra suppliers partners. do, what our customers do, our partners do, et cetera. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to ask you a question that's not in the script here. A politically hot question, perhaps. You said it takes a village. Couldn't agree more. And what a beautiful metaphor for the organization, right, for business. We are a village. Mm-hmm. Do you think that women CEOs, women leaders, when they're in a majority in the organization, will be better at enabling this collaborative village? You know, it's interesting because we actually did some research years ago on people in uh, sales roles and people in sales management roles. And what we found was that, you know, at the when you get down to it, that the women, the women in those positions were more empathetic or more compassionate and tended to listen more than guys did. And that was just a, a, you know, a fact of how we got brought up. And I think that those, those listening skills, I think those team building skills, 
I think are, are a huge deal that, you know, I've, I've always been a, an advocate for when I take a look at an organizations and I ran three sales organizations when I had guys and, and women reporting to me, you know, it was, I had an easier job with the, with the women. And I think they were just a, you know, did a better job and a more thorough job. And I just think that's, that's something we're going to have to start dealing with. We're going to have to also start dealing with the generational issues going out there between the Gen Zens and the millennials and the baby boomers. Cause you know, there's, there's a whole lot of things going on in that area too, that I think, you know, we're going to have to be sensitive to what happens when the, when the millennials start becoming CEOs, they already are, you know, you take a look oh, at yeah. technology. There are a lot of the guys in the AI space that are in that category. And you know, that's going to be a different set of, of skill sets too, that we got to be aware of. I'm hoping that, you know, all those soccer teammates, uh, are all about team building and collaboration. And so that at least in this instance, we're talking about the millennial modus operandi will be helpful, but let's see what happens. Yeah, I think the, the millennial thing's interesting because I was speaking at a conference and uh, there was a panel right after me talking about millennials. And one of the, one of the other panelists didn't show up. So the uh, person who was running the conference asked me if I would stay around and sit in on this. And I go, you know, I go, Bob, I don't even have kids. <laughs> he said, but you'll have, something, <laughs> you'll have something interesting to say. So the woman who's running the panels, you know, written a book on millennials and talking about how, you know, you've got to manage them differently. They grew up differently. You know, they had participation ribbons. They had a different set of values. And she's going this. And, uh, and I must have been kind of squirming a little bit because when it comes to the questions, uh, they said, why don't we start with Jim? And it's, what's your reaction to this? And I said, you do realize that you're talking about a U.S.-based phenomenon. And she goes, what do you mean? And I go, there are no millennials in China. They didn't get participation ribbons. That's right. <laughs> there are no millennials in Israel. There are no millennials in South Africa. I can guarantee you there are no millennials in Germany. <laughs> and I said, so if you're talking about you know working for a regional bank in Nebraska, great. I, I buy into everything you're saying, but if I if I'm going to work in a global, you talked about you know you're CEO of a global company, mid market global company. Okay, you know, the rest of the world didn't grow up that way, and so in addition to talking about what we need to do about you know the care and feeding of millennials, let's talk about the millennials. Tell you, say here's what the rest of the world looks like, and it's not what you grew up in. Stay with me for the second part of my conversation with Jim Dickey. In part two of this episode, we dive into how artificial intelligence can supercharge your sales. This conversation blew my mind. If you're not already using artificial intelligence in your sales organization, I hate to say it, but darling, you are already behind. Hey, kidding aside, join Jim and me in episode two and get it about what AI can do for you. If you like what you're hearing, you'll find all the Good Company podcast recordings on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you're curious about working with me, send me an email, barbara at shannon-solutions.com. This episode and all the Good Company podcasts are produced with the help from the amazing team at Resonate Recordings. Till next time, stay strong and carry on. I'm Barbara Shannon, and you've been listening to the Good Company Podcast.